We are continuing to make our way through our study on the attributes of God. We've been uh, working through the first category of God's attributes that we've labeled as attributes of greatness. And you may see this morning that we're turning our attention to the holiness of God as the next attribute that, you're, that we're going to be studying together. You may be inclined to think that as we turn to the holiness of God, <clears throat> as we turn to the holiness of God, that we're turning our attention now to attributes of God's goodness rather than attributes of God's greatness. And you would be partially right, but not completely. We're labeling this as an attribute that's firmly planted in both categories, as an attribute of God's greatness and an attribute of God's goodness. You see that at the top right of your handout as we look to God's holiness. We're treating this attribute very much as kind of a hinge that swings between the two. We'll talk more on that in just a moment. The holiness of God is, is an attribute that is one of the first that comes to mind when we consider God's attributes. If I were to ask you to list God's attributes, I presume that holiness would be one of the first that would come to mind. There have been many who say that this is God's chief attribute, the attribute that uh, is kind of overriding all of the other attributes. Now, we said early in this study that we want to be careful not to create a hierarchy of God's attributes, but there's certainly no problem with the view that holiness touches and speaks to all of God's other attributes. The goal is not to bring holiness down so much as it is, as we said in our second week in the study, to bring all of the other attributes up and to realize that all of God's attributes touch one another. So as we turn our attention to God's holiness, I want to acknowledge that there's a sense of inadequacy that accompanies teaching this specific topic. I know that this could be said about any attribute of God, um, but as I've been studying and am now teaching on the holiness of God, I want to confess an overwhelming sense of inadequacy and unworthiness to touch on this topic. The holiness of God is an amazing, amazing attribute that should cause jaws to drop and should cause knees to bow. The more that I studied the holiness of God this week, the stronger that sense of inadequacy grew. But nevertheless, we're going to dive in and begin by defining what the holiness of God is. Put simply, and this is point A under the, uh, under the second point in your handout, put simply and most fundamentally, the word holiness means that God is set apart that he's set apart or that he is separate. The likely origin of the Old Testament word uh, comes from a word that means to cut or to divide, to set one thing apart from another. Now we're going to explain many ways, two, in pri two primary ways, but different ways that God is set apart. But what's actually most important for us this morning as we consider God's holiness is to just recognize that God is described as set apart, holy. That description of God's holiness is, is generally not qualified in any way. It's just stated. He is holy. He is set apart. So we're going to talk about ways that God is holy and things that he is set apart from. But I want us to acknowledge from the front this morning that God is just described as set apart with like nothing on the other end. He's just, he's just set apart. He is holy. 
I'm in student ministry and am often adapting my vocabulary to the words that students are using regularly, and it's always a learning curve for me. But one of the ones that's being thrown around right now that students are saying about various athletes or even about each other when someone does something impressive is that they are built different. They are, that, that guy, that girl, he or she is built different. What that means is that they're on another level. They may also throw around, they're playing chess while you're playing checkers. Those are all expressions that I hear regularly that are used to describe a certain individual that, that is just on another level. Maybe this is an athlete that is dominating the competition. Maybe this is someone that has demonstrated themselves to be more intelligent than the people around them. They're built different. They're on another level. Those are all expressions that are similar to the idea of being set apart, but those are actually describing someone that's at a higher level within the same category. With that in mind, I want you to hear these words from John Piper. He says this on the topic of holiness. When we describe God as holy, we mean that he is one of a kind, that there is none like him. He is in a class by himself. God is holy in his absolute uniqueness. Everything else, says Piper, belongs to a class. We are human. Rover is a dog. The oak is a tree. Earth is a planet. The Milky Way is one of a billion galaxies. Gabriel is an angel. Satan is a demon. But only God is God. And therefore, therefore, he is holy, utterly different, distinct, and unique. God is set apart. When someone encounters God every time in Scripture, they become aware not of the similarities that they share with God. They become aware of the differences. He's set apart. In Psalm 50, God says, you thought that I was just like you, and I'm not like you. We could add to that, yes, you are set apart. You are holy. The most important point of recognition within holiness is that there is a gap between any created thing and the creator. He is holy. He is set apart. But I do want to acknowledge that there are two primary ways that we should think about God's holiness, his set apartness. There are two primary ways that scripture speaks of God's holiness. So under point A of your handout, I have two statements that are listed, and these are the two ways that scripture primarily speaks of God's holiness. Just move through those quickly. First, God is set apart. He is holy in majesty or in glory. And then secondly, God is set apart in purity or in righteousness. It's helpful for us to distinguish between those two because I think the second, the second statement there is the line that we typically think of when we think of holiness, but that is only part of the holiness of God. That's only part of it. The, the purity of God, the fact that he is set apart from sin, that he's holy in that sense, that is a category of God's holiness, but it's only a part of it. Listen to these words from R.C. Sproul on the holiness of God. He says, purity is not excluded from the idea of the holy. It is contained within it. But the point we must remember is that the idea of the holy is never exhausted by the idea of purity. 
It includes purity, but it is much more than that. It is purity and transcendence, unquote. So it's important that when we think of God as, it's important that we first think of his holiness as being holy in glory or holy in majesty, set apart, none like him. His majestic otherness. And then also, that he is set apart in purity. He is holy in purity, set apart from sin, untouched, unstained, completely separate from it. Why do we need this twofold description of God's holiness? Why is this necessary? I want to acknowledge point B states that there is a difficulty in categorizing the attribute of holiness. When you teach on the attributes of God. When you study the attributes of God, it's common to categorize God's attributes into communicable and incommunicable attributes. What that means is the communicable attributes are attributes that um, God enables us to mirror him in some way as we grow in Christ-likeness. So as you grow in your pursuit of Christ, God is a loving God, and we should grow in our love. That attribute is communicable to us. There are also incommunicable attributes that we've been studying that we do not share in any way. God's omnipotence or omniscience that uh, James Sullivan taught on would be examples of incommunicable attributes. The question is, where does holiness fall? Is it better categorized as an attribute of God's greatness, his vast extent, the vast extent of his infinite nature in ways that are entirely unlike us, or is holiness an attribute of goodness, his moral perfection and how he deals in relationship with his creatures? When holiness is directed towards God's glory, his majesty, his separateness in his power, we need to be clear that we certainly do not share in that attribute of God. Holiness is typically listed as a communicable attribute. It's something that we share with God in, but that's not how scripture exhaustively speaks of holiness. We do not share in God's holiness in glory or in majesty, and we never will. And yet scripture does call us to be holy as God is holy. That certainly is not a command to be glorious as God is glorious. It's a call to be set apart from the world, unstained by sin, to pursue righteousness just like God is holy in purity. Because of this, we found it helpful to view holiness as an attribute that is a hinge between God's communicable and incommunicable attributes. Affirming the twofold understanding of God's holiness, there's a quote at the top of your handout by Louis Burkhoff that I, that I think is helpful. It drives at this exact point. He says this, the scriptural idea of the holiness of God is twofold. First, it denotes that he is absolutely distinct from all his creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. This may be called the majesty holiness of God. Second, the holiness of God has a specifically ethical aspect in scripture. The fundamental idea of the ethical holiness of God is a separation from moral evil or sin. So to simply say that holiness is a communicable attribute of God is an oversimplification of the biblical data. God is set apart in majesty and in glory in a way that is entirely unlike us and forever will be. God is set apart in purity and righteousness. 
and he calls us to mirror him, to follow him, to become like Jesus in that way. Okay, well, we're going to move on. Those are just simple understandings, definitions of how we should think about the holiness of God, but let's dive into God's word and see what it has to say about God's holiness. We're going to work through those those two understandings of God's holiness that I've given you, and we're going to dive into God's word. I've given a long list of texts by both of those understandings of God's holiness that are both biblical. I've given you a number of texts. We're certainly not going to dive into all of them this morning, but first, I want to see what God's word has to say about the fact that God is set apart in majesty, his, what we will call majestic holiness, his majestic holiness, the set apartness of God, that which means that he is completely distinct from his creation. This is most broadly what scripture refers to when it describes God as holy. Now, I'm gonna be working through a number of texts here fairly quickly. You're welcome to try to turn along. Uh, You're welcome to uh, just listen. Um, So just for your awareness, we'll be moving fairly quickly. We're not just gonna sit in one text this morning. I wanna begin by drawing your attention to Hosea, Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. I want to start here because of our tendency to simply picture holiness as an attribute that we share with God. In this text, God gives his holiness as actually the very thing that separates us from him. His holiness is the very thing that makes him distinct from humanity. Hosea 11, look at verse 9. God says this, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In that verse, God makes the statement, I'm God, I'm not a man, I'm holy. It is his holiness that is the very thing that he gives as the demonstration of the fact that he's not a man, that he's not like us. It is the thing that separates him from humanity. Now, again, we will talk about the amazing ways that we are called to be holy like God is holy. We'll talk about those things in a few moments. But you actually have to do some work to get there because the very word holy, set apart, it implies that no one shares in it, that he's unique, he's set apart. It's not something that we share with him. We can't touch it. He's God, we are not He says, I am God, I'm not a man, I'm the Holy One. He is set apart in majesty, he is set apart in glory. In the song that Moses sang in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, holiness is listed not just as what separates God from man, it also separates him from the the so-called other gods. Moses sings this in Exodus 15, he says, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises and working wonders? Those are statements about, frankly, the the bigness of God, the majesty and glory of God, that there's there's no one, not even in the, the, the conceived of gods of that day, there's no one that matches him. God's holiness sets him apart from any other divine being that you could even conceive of. It's not 
that his glory and majesty are the highest among many glorious and majestical beings. It's that he's set apart. He's completely holy. There's no one and nothing like him. Perhaps one of the most well-known texts on God's holiness is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we see Isaiah's vision. There are certainly elements of God's moral, God's moral holiness, his ethical holiness in this text. We're going to get, again, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But the holiness of God that's described in Isaiah chapter 6 is much bigger than God's just ethical set-apartness. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 3, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. The statements that fill Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 4 are are statements of the majesty and glory and bigness of God. And in view of God as Isaiah sees this scene playing out, the word that best describes what he is seeing that is being ascribed to God by the angels that are around him is holy, 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 set apart, different, untouched. Even the angels, who by the way in scripture are often called God's holy angels, they look at him and they say, set apart, holy. Holy, holy. By the way, that description of angels that are surrounding God, crying out, holy, 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 is described again in Revelation chapter four, which is far future to the moment in Isaiah chapter six. We're taken back into the throne room and we catch a glimpse of angels looking to God and saying, holy, 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 we're told in Revelation chapter four that they're singing a song that doesn't stop. Like we catch a glimpse of this in Isaiah six, we catch a glimpse of it in Revelation four. I think it's happening right now in heaven. The angels are looking to God and they continually repeat over and over again, you are set apart. You are majestic. You are glorious. You are set apart. You are holy. An eternal proclamation of the fact that God is set apart in majesty. These texts and many others come together to communicate the majesty of God that is completely separate from any other thing. Make no mistake, we do not share in this holiness. We will forever, forever look at him as infinitely beyond us in the holiness of his glory, that he is set apart as God. This sense of holiness belongs to him and him alone. This sense of holiness, by the way, is what the hymn writer spoke of in what is one of the most well-known songs ever written, holy, holy, holy. You know these words, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power 
in love and in purity. That is a statement of the majestic holiness of God that we often sing together. But scripture also speaks to an ethical holiness of God, that other side of the coin, the fact that God is set apart. Uh, the next point, uh, point B, that he is set apart in purity and in righteousness. God's word often references holiness from the perspective of God being set apart specifically, not just from everything, but set apart specifically from sin and from evil. This is a way in which God is holy. And frankly, it's a way that dominates the pages of scripture. The word still means set apart, but the emphasis is, is moral. It's being set apart from sin, set apart from evil. There are many things and even people in the Bible that are referred to with this word holy. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there was a holy place. There is the holy of holies. These were set apart as sacred. They were to be treated carefully. There are tools in the Old Testament for used for worship that are described as set apart for a holy purpose, for a sacred purpose. They're to be treated carefully, treated as sacred. It's in this sense, albeit to a much greater degree, that God is often described as holy. I'm going to read to you from Habakkuk 1, verses 12 and 13 as a demonstration of this. In Habakkuk 1, verse 12, God is described as the holy one. And in verse 13, we read this. Your eyes are too pure. Your eyes are too pure to look at or, or to approve of evil. You cannot look at wickedness with favor. The description there is that God cannot even, he can't even look upon it, that God is completely separated from sin. It does not touch him. His eyes are too pure to look upon it. Now, let's be clear, that doesn't mean that God is ignorant of it, that he's not aware of our sin. That term, look upon it, what's, what's being driven home there is the idea that he can't look upon it desirably. He can't approve of it. He, he, he doesn't look at it with any desire. It doesn't, it doesn't tempt him. The very nature of sin is contrary to God. That's what his ethical holiness means. It, it, it doesn't draw him. There's nothing in it that resonates with him. That's why James says that God is not tempted by evil. It doesn't resonate with him. It does not draw him. It is contrary to him because he is holy. I hope some of you can resonate with me. I love, I love blue cheese. My wife despises it. When I see something with blue cheese on a menu, my eyes are drawn to it. I, 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 generally, I generally, because my wife despises it, doesn't cook with it very often, I'm generally inclined to order something with blue cheese in it if I have the opportunity to do so. But Alyssa's repelled by it. She avoids it. She's never drawn to it. That's a picture, it's an example of the holiness of God, which means that he is so separate and separated from sin that he isn't, he isn't intrigued by it in any way. He isn't drawn to it. That's not us. When my wife sees blue cheese on a menu, she won't order that thing. It's not attractive to her in any way. She's not drawn to it. I look at it and it resonates with me and I'm drawn to it. I want you to, to picture our relationship with sin, which, which draws us, but it does not draw God. 
He does not resonate with it in any way. He doesn't look at it and say, uh, I wish I could do that, but I can't because I'm holy. It's separate from him. It's contrary to him. He hates sin and is completely separate from it. Listen to these words from Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. What places a gap between man and God relationally is sin. There's forever a gap between man and God in God's majesty and glory, but the relational gap is caused by sin. A few moments ago, we referenced Isaiah 6 as a demonstration of God's majestic holiness, but I think it's helpful to observe Isaiah's response to the holiness of God. When Isaiah catches a glimpse of the God who is majestic in holiness, what does he immediately become aware of? It's his sin. He immediately becomes aware of it. As he sees this majestic vision of God, he says this, woe is me for I am ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's immediate reaction is, I don't belong here because I'm not pure. I am stained by sin. I'm a sinful man, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinful man from a sinful environment. So these Two sides of the coin of God's holiness really have significant overlap between them. You cannot see the one and not become aware of the other. Before we leave this second category, I want to acknowledge that Jesus, the Son of God, is described as holy. We've said throughout this study that he has full possession of the divine attributes. In Acts 3, Jesus is described as the holy and righteous one. That is to say, Jesus was completely set apart from sin. In Mark 1, a demon-possessed man approaches Jesus and cries out, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. God is holy. He's set apart from sin. This is why the book of Exodus tells us that God cannot leave sin unpunished. He cannot ignore it. He cannot ignore it. This is a fundamental gospel truth that we must understand. God cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate it. It is so contrary to him that the only way sin cannot be held against someone is if someone perfectly holy dies in their place. And there is only one who is set apart from sin the Holy One of God must take the place of sinful men for their sin to be forgiven. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him who knew no sin, he was holy, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God is holy. Let's talk about application of this doctrine of holiness. Just acknowledge again the sense of inadequacy. The holiness of God is clear on every page of scripture. There's so much more that could be said here, but I want to spend some time talking about what this means for us. How do we apply it? First item I've written for you there is 
Worship the holy God. Worship the holy God. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 99. As you do, I want to read to you from Psalm 29. The psalmist says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Worship him in the splendor of his holiness. It's a consistent biblical command that the holiness of God should cause us to worship him, to praise him, to be amazed, for jaws to drop and for knees to bow in light of the God who is completely set apart. We are to worship the holy God. One of my favorite texts on this is Psalm 99. I'm gonna read the whole Psalm and I want you to note the centrality of God's holiness to the worship that is being lifted up in this text. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble, Psalm 99.1. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion and he is exalted above the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. They spoke to him. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. Oh Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord, our God. Worship at his holy hill for holy is the Lord, our God. Psalm 99 is a demonstration of a worship directed to God that flows out of the awareness of his holiness. His holiness appears in many ways in this Psalm. It's demonstrated in, in, in many ways in his relationship with us. The call is worship him because he's set apart. He's set apart. He's holy, holy in majesty, holy in purity. Let's worship the holy God. A second application. A second application, live your life in reverence of a holy God. Live your life in reverence of a holy God. Those who disobey God in scripture are often described as disregarding God's holiness. It's an interesting description. Disobedience to God is often described in scripture as disregarding the holiness of God. <clears throat> in Leviticus chapter 10, we read about two young men named Nadab and Abihu. And they were to offer sacrifices to God. And we're told that in their pursuit, as they approached God in their pursuit of offering these sacrifices to God, we're told vaguely that they brought before God a strange fire, which God had not commanded them. We're not told specifically what that was. We're just told that, that it was a strange fire. It was not what God had commanded, that he did not, they did not follow the instructions that he had given for the sacrifices that were to be, off, that, that, that were to be offered. Because of that, we're told that God immediately consumed them. That they were immediately killed. And as Aaron sees this play out, God gives a description 
about why he punished them in this way. These are the words that God says in Leviticus chapter 10. For those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. For those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. You can read about that story in Leviticus chapter 10 of men who disregarded the holiness of God and how they went about performing their their practice of worship. God demands that he is treated as holy. It is not just Nadab and Abihu who experience this in Numbers chapter 20. Moses is told to go and speak to the rock to bring forth water. Moses goes and he strikes the rock twice with a staff. Because of that, God punishes Moses. And in his explanation of the punishment that God directed to Moses, here's what he says. You did not treat me as holy. You didn't treat me as holy. In Ezekiel 36, because of Israel's disobedience, God says, you have profaned my holy name. You have taken my name that is holy. It's set apart and you've drug it through the mud. He says, I'm going to rescue. I'm going to rescue the reputation of my name. I'm going to show the nations that I am holy. But he speaks to Israel and says, my name has been profaned by you. My holiness. In all of these and, and more, the people of God lost sight of the holiness of God. That's what's happening. They're, they're, it's true to say that they're not being holy, but how scripture describes it in these scenes is actually not so much their holiness, but the fact that they lost sight of God's holiness. In all of these, the people of God lost sight of the holiness of God. They did not live in reverence of God's holiness. They did not treat him as holy. The emphasis of these texts is not so much a call that says, I need to be more holy, though that is a biblical call. We'll get there in just a second. The emphasis of these texts is not so much, I need to be more holy. The emphasis of these is, I need to remember God's holiness and act accordingly. Even this morning, as we gather for worship, when you are singing to God, are you doing it with a sense of his holiness? Or are you falling into the habit that's so easy for any of us to fall into of just doing things like singing the words off of a screen? When you listen to the word proclaimed, when you interact with the body of Christ, when you serve, that is to be done in light of a God who is set apart, who is majestic. These are to be done with God's holiness in view. Your obedience, your personal growth, the denial of self that leads to a thousand different applications. Those are pursued in light of a holy God. It's towards this that Louis Burkhoff writes, the holiness of God awakens in man a sense of absolute nothingness, creature consciousness that leads to absolute self-abasement. Unquote. Nadab and Abihu, Isaiah, the Apostle John in Revelation 1, they would warn you, do not be casual in your approach to God. Treat him as holy. That leads to a third application. A similar emphasis, but, but different. Be holy as God is holy. Be holy as God is holy. And I think the second point would certainly lead to the third application. 
But both of these applications are drawn in Scripture. Remember God's holiness and act accordingly and actually pursue holiness yourself. And we've already acknowledged we cannot mimic God's majestic holiness, but we are called to be set apart just like God is set apart. Another way to say that would be to say that we are not to be conformed to the world. Scripture speaks of our holiness which is strange to even say, to reference our holiness. But Scripture speaks of our holiness. And it speaks of it in two ways. First of all, in God's Word, in kind of a shocking development, every believer is described as holy. Every believer is described as holy. The word for saint or believer in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word holy. We're called holy ones. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Scripture says that you are a saint. It's hagios. It's the same word as, as holy. You're labeled as a holy one. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, the author says that we have been sanctified. That is also the same word. We've been sanctified. We've been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' sacrifice, the author of Hebrews said, makes us holy. Paul looks at the church at Corinth, which can easily be summarized as perhaps the worst church in the New Testament. You know what he calls them? Saints, holy ones. Doesn't make sense in how we often think of the word holy, but that's the term that scripture uses. Every believer is described as holy, as someone who has been made holy, not by your merit, but by the merit of the Holy One of God. You have been declared, you've been given his righteousness, his holiness. Because of that, Scripture consistently calls us, because we've been made holy by the blood of Jesus, to be holy. <laughs> You've been made holy and so be holy. That's a strange formulation, but it's how Scripture speaks of it. It starts in the Old Testament. It carries all the way through the New Testament. In Leviticus eleven forty-five, we read the statement from God, you shall be holy because I am holy. Jesus says, you should be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Peter repeats this statement, be holy as your father is holy. I'll acknowledge one more thing as we close, and that is that holiness does not mean, we've already said this, but holiness does not mean lifting yourself high like God. Holiness does not mean lifting ourselves high like God. It means just the opposite humbling ourselves, turning from sin, setting ourselves apart because God has set us apart. I want you to listen to these words from Isaiah 57, verse 15. Thus says the one who is high and exalted, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. God is majestic in his holiness, but he embraces those who do not ascribe to grasp at his majesty, but those who bow before it in humility, who set themselves apart, not in self-righteousness, but in awe of the Holy One. Father, your holiness is an overwhelming topic. Cause us to be amazed 
cause us to live our lives in reverence of the holy God. And help us to be holy as you are holy. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.